Hey, welcome to the Michaud Mission, Two Men, One Podcast, every black film ever made. My name is Len, a.k.a. the Bat Triple, and as always, I'm joined by my partner. Hey, this is Vincent Williams. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we begin two weeks back-to-back of looking at, at films that were independent films, independent uh, festival darlings at the time of their release. And both films were written and directed by black women, starting tonight with Vincent's selection from 1996 as we review the romantic comedy drama history lesson that is Cheryl Dunye's The Watermelon Woman tonight here on The Me Show Mission. Yes, yes we are. But before we get into that, as always, we like to start with all of your feedback. Shout out to each and every one of you that emails us at mission at gmail.com. And hello to everyone out there watching us streaming live via StreamYard on YouTube, as well as in our Facebook group at Mission. What's going on, folks? Vincent, we got letters. All right. And I am going to bring up one of said letters now. All right. What do people writing about? Well, the first letter we got is from our dear friend and past guest of the Michaud Mission, Lisa Gill. Hey, what's up, Lisa? Um, Dr. Gill? What's up, Dr. Gill? Dr. Gill. That's that's right. She worked hard for that. Um, All the way from Fordham College, in regards to the Michaud Mission Dispatch Notice, which um, celebrated and highlighted that we will be reviewing the Watermelon Woman today, she says, this is one of my favorite films. I often show this film in my film class. Nicely done. Okay. All right. All right. Film has quite a pedigree and and quite a large number of fans. We shall see if it has gained two more fans this evening. We shall see. We also heard from Maurice Poplar. Hey, what's up, Maurice? In regards to our review last week of Disney and Pixar's Soul, Maurice writes, subject line, brother, where's your soul? Mmm. Yo. This film triggered me. I enjoyed the ride to the very end, and then the thoughts came flooding in. I won't go over stuff that you talked about. You can uh, read it on air, but I would love your thoughts, though. What's the point of this movie? Is it that you shouldn't be so busy getting the bag that you don't live life? I feel like that's a great message for folks who aren't supposed to get the bag. Like, there are two christianities in america one that says it's jesus like to suffer and another says that god loves you because you're blessed this movie gives the very classic argument that it's not about achieving your dreams it's about enjoying life don't waste it like joe and his dad did like those dreamers who work their lives trying to move the world This idea that you don't have a purpose is almost an un-American idea, contradicts the great man theory of history we learn in school, in and of itself very problematic, and feels like the bomb of the second rate. Mix that with the myth of 
meritocracy and it starts feeling very toxic. Winners are going to win and the rest of y'all shouldn't worry about winning. Never mind that the winners usually start on the same level of the playing field. And when you put it in a black movie, it begs the question, why come Joe and his dad struggled to make a living making music? Why come Ch Cody Chestnut has to find joy in the subway? Why come this evokes Negro League images of white musicians just off screen having very different experiences? It's got that plucky Negro making a dollar out of 15 centsness about it. Just like white families live in multi-story single family homes in the suburbs, let's not interrogate this moving on. I know this paints a particular picture of New York City, but if it's not about purpose, if it's on, if it's only about sparking joy, suddenly we've suggested the struggle is immaterial. The world just is. And that's some BS. What is this? Propaganda? These Emeryville Pixar artists become sellouts between Oakland and Berkeley, telling the masses to chill out on the goal setting and enjoy life while they enjoy very different lives. On the one hand, speaking to black Americans, they're speaking to some of the most privileged people on earth. And on another, it disrespects the struggle and purpose of what it took us to get there. You can't take a snapshot of life that doesn't capture that, which leads me to the conclusion that this movie wasn't met for us or was it mo poplar you 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 want a piece of this or you want me to take a piece of this you what? which 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 you which which, which which you want len well it's your jam right so it was your jam right you, you want you want you want this or you want me to take it I like, I you want the first slot i want to i want to i want to hear your viewpoint on i mean because you look I 100% guaranteed that these conversations were not had at Pixar about this film. I'll mm. start there. Okay. I've actually heard this argument a couple of times because this, um, I heard this appropriately enough. I heard this argument about this film with the princess and the frog, mm. which kind of had this same notion where Tiana has, it has worked very hard to, to, to get what, you know, to get this restaurant and to, and to get her goal and sort of the underlying theme of the film was that she needed to, to calm down and live life as if sort of being goal oriented was wrong. And, you know, I, I think this is a common theme in films where we're sort of the A type personality who wants to achieve things is is missing doesn't stop and smell the roses if you will mm -hmm. like like i don't think that that's something that is just in this black film films. or in these in in right in black films but i do think that race complicates this argument mm -hmm. be, because there is it it, it kind of goes into this sentiment that achievement is somehow anti-black which appropriately enough as you and I, because we run the tightest of ships and uh, 30 seconds before, before the episode started, you and I were feverishly looking up how watermelon became a racist trope. <laughs> like feverishly. But it, it, it you, you know, watermelon became sort of, um, 
it, it was equated with this sense of black laziness, if you will, this stereotype of black laziness. So that I understand how that strikes a nerve when you have a black character who has worked really hard and worked at their craft and isn't able to make a living at it or, or isn't able to live the life they want to live. And then one of the themes that you can pull from it is, 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 is you shouldn't focus so much on that part of it and just be happy. I, I guess my short answer is I don't know if anyone involved with, and then, so it's representation, it's, it's, rep it's race, but then it's representation. Like this is the only Pixar film that has had a black hero or black protagonist. Like mm -hmm. there had been four other films with black protagonists, then okay, you can have this one. But since this is the only one, and let's just be real, I don't know when we're going to see one again. Mm -hmm. It, I, I understand how this touches a nerve. I, I absolutely understand how this touches a nerve. I think the part that bothers me the most is I don't get the sense that anyone thought about this. Um, maybe they didn't think about it to to that degree. I don't. I don't want to believe that that didn't come up in conversations. I certainly don't want to say that uh, once Ken Powers comes onto the scene in the production of this movie. Um, at which point the movie, if you read the pre-production, does take a decided shift um, in its tone and in its focus. I don't want to think that Ken Powers didn't maybe think about that. Um, I just, uh, I honestly, I think that there's something a little deeper that this movie is trying to tell than what he's saying and i don't know if i can come up with the words for it and i don't want to and then i certainly don't mean to invalidate maurice's uh feelings about the film he can he's, he's certainly open to that opinion and to that um you know that perspective after watching the movie i don't share it um to that mm -hmm. degree nor do i share your perspective on it and that's fine you know i think it is i think it is a complicated movie that's trying to tell a pretty um a, a pretty involved story and and because of that will hit people differently uh i think that is also part of the reason why the movie i think you know there i think it's a legitimate question to say who was this movie for you know who is the audience for this film i think that it that's fair because of the themes and the messages that this show, that this movie is trying to uh, play around with. Um, so, you know, that's his read on it. God bless. I'm not going to like go well, and investigate. Well, I, I, I guess, I guess, I guess what it really comes down to is this. And this is something that you and I have grappled with, with these films a lot. If you are creating black art, mm -hmm. I think there is a tension between the artifact standing on its own. Like this is just the, the, the piece of this art I've it. created. 
Right. And how or even if you should place that within the continuum of black art. Mm -hmm. Like if I make some art and I have this image that I'm utilizing, am I beholden to everything that has happened before? Right. So that again, in this case, this is an example of, of a theme that, that, that the, uh, again, you, you're sort of this A-type person. Um, I want to achieve this dream. I've done all of this. Things haven't worked out the way I wanted them to work out. And arguably the film is saying, even when you get to this height, like even when he gets to this height, that is not satisfying. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it's not even worth all of this effort. Like, like it's not even worth all this, this effort. Do you need to think about the stereotype of of of, of basically the happy darky? See, but again, who, like I just sort of content and and and, and you know, and, and he's just shuffling along and, and he's well, he's the happy darky. Yeah, see, but again, like like I said last week, I don't think that this film necessarily is saying that if he gets to that point, if he gets that to play with the you know with the the set of his life, you know, as it happened in the film, so he get he gets the break and then he goes home and he get he gets his suit together and whatever, and then he goes play plays and it doesn't give him some at least some semblance of fulfillment then i i wrote with y'all but this film come but that comes after a truly amazing experience that this man goes through because it's not just this you gotta remember this movie is not just all of me whether or not you believe it or not this is a man who died came back to life and was uh, afforded the opportunity of looking at his life truly with his own eyes in in a way and that that puts a perspective that we will never have we will never be afforded and coming out of that moment he felt the moment he he enjoyed it he did enjoy it, but it it didn't feel it didn't feel as cathartic as he thought as he thought it would. And he tried to he tried to grapple with that. And I honestly don't know if if the movie actually gives you the answer of what that is. But he what whether whether or not the answer is him that he should have just in, enjoyed his life as he had it, or is a matter of, or is it or you know. Is there more? I don't think it's saying that, you know, his life was great and he should just be the happy darky. I think it's saying that, like, is there is there more to expect, mm-hmm. more more to want? And I don't think the movie gives you that answer, which I think is very brave for any movie, especially an animated movie. Um, right. It's open-ended. Right. Uh, so, okay. no. Does this film, you know tick every box no it no it doesn't and and no film ever will but i think that this was a, a a thoughtful film that tried to tick as many as it 
it could or maybe was presented presented to it. And for the most part, it, it nailed them. Some of them, the, the nail is driven all the way in and some maybe the head is sticking up a little bit. But I think that it, mm-hmm. it did a fine job. Robert Monroe le- leaves a comment saying, I wonder how the black folks at Pixar who worked on Soul didn't see these critiques coming for the director to say that he didn't hear any discussion about Princess and the Frog amazes me first of all i'm not going to say that it it necessarily is out of bounds that somebody didn't hear about princess and the frog princess and the frog was for for as as much of a meteor as it was for us to have like this black princess in in disney you know and it it was a hit but it wasn't like a monster hit for for disney and it's a movie that's almost 10 years old you know what I mean? Lynn, if you're making a black animated movie, you 100% have to know about Princess and the Frog. You have to know about Princess and the Frog. No, no, you- no, no. All of it. Like, I don't expect uh, I don't expect Steven Spielberg to know this. Like, I don't expect you you know, um, you, you know, hell, you, you know, Zach Landis, like you stop him on the street and he's talking about Ghostbusters and you ask him, well, what about Princess and the Frog? But come on, man, stop. You're making a black animated movie and you don't know about Princess and the Frog? It doesn't. No, he's not saying he doesn't know about Princess and the Frog. The person is saying that he doesn't didn't know all of the critique about Princess and the Frog. And 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 to say to say to say this is just my opinion. To my it's my opinion. There are many critiques about Princess and the Frog. People look at it from different perspectives, right? And there are some critiques of Princess and the Frog that I think that this this movie maybe uh uh speaks to as far as like you know her being out of her body for most of the film and not being respectful of where where her voices are coming from and everything like that and there are some some arguments about it that maybe it doesn't speak to or maybe it doesn't speak to as loudly as profoundly as everybody thinks but um i don't i don't know i just i just i just don't i don't think it's i don't know i'm just i'm i i just don't necessarily agree that that's just some big egregious freaking thing you know what i mean it's just it's just i, I just don't i just don't um uh miss makiba well, says well neither does he <laughs> it says thank you thank you len uh he spent so much time looking for ocean finding it was water kind of felt like a letdown and 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 uh, um that's kind of like what i was saying on all those lines but um thank you mo i appreciate your perspective though as, as always man you're always a thoughtful uh fan about so to say always Support Black Podcast. Meet Shannon, Cameron, Lauren, and Mel. Four black women who are bonded by nerd culture as they discuss all things comics, games, movies, and TV. Join them bi-weekly on the Nerds of Prey podcast. That's Nerds of Prey, P-R-E-Y podcast. A different kind of nerd culture podcast because they love you back. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and every place that you find the best in podcasts, including nerdsofpreypodcast.com. Check them out. And remember, support Black Podcasts. Uh, we also heard from Tamisha Keith, Vince. Hey, what's up, Tamisha? 
She says, I love your podcast. You both always offer such rich and interesting perspective on my favorite movies. I look forward to every episode. I do a monthly virtual lunch with my coworkers to discuss a movie that we watched after listening to an episode on your podcast about the movie. Wow. That's that's pretty cool. Very nice. That's pretty cool. <laughs> that's pretty that's pretty dope. Yeah. Um, I was wondering when you might do an episode about the movie The Butler. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. <laughs> On the movie. I wonder if she already has the lunch menu planned for when <laughs> they talk about the butler. So she's like, when are you going to do the butler? Because, you know, I've got I got the squash going bad in my ba- in my kitchen <laughs> and I'm just waiting. Um, I, well, we'll get there. We'll get to the butler. Uh, yeah. You know, I've never seen it. Me, me, me neither. Me yeah, neither. I've never seen it. Yeah. Uh, Miss McKeever, thank you. I was going to say this, but I didn't want to stop and look it up. But she said, Princess and the Frog came out in 2009 before social media became so entrenched in hateration. Fair point. 2009, the the social media was not what it is today. That is a fair point. Uh, They still talking about it. Well, that's because people just can't shut up. Anyway, we got... um, I I mean, you you can discount it, but like... That was wrong. Like I should have said that. I, I admit like I should have said that. Like, you can't gaslight, like, every, like, this is an actual thing. Like, this no. is some dude on the corner of the internet talking about it. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. That's, like, that's why, that's why I said, thing. that's why I said I shouldn't have said that. Because it is yeah. fair that people still talk about and they still have their argument about Princess and the Frog. So that, that's, and, and, and it's fair. And some of those arguments are fair. You know, so I'm not going, I shouldn't have said that. I apologize. I admit that right off the bat. Okay. All right. So uh, you kind of like spoiled it a little bit, Vince. Um, We're going to be reviewing the watermelon woman, which put the question in my mind. When did the whole idea of watermelon become a racist trope? And as you mentioned, we were doing our research. That's right. Because we are on it. <laughs> so I, 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 there was actually someone wrote an article about this in 2016. Uh, I actually had it up. It was in the Atlantic. Okay. And I read, and I'm actually going to give you the author's name because I'm about to utilize all of the information from <laughs> William from William Black. No, it's from, I'm sorry, 2014. How watermelons became a racist trope. Mm. And the funny thing is, it's a relatively new racist thing. Really? After emancipation, newly freed black people would grow watermelons and sell them. Okay. So it was actually this symbol of economic empowerment. And right, racist right, right. Southerners flipped it around and said that it was a sign of black laziness. How's it so a sign that of black, black laziness? People, it... it I mean, it worked. Black people became um, embarrassed by watermelon and everything that went along with it. And and it wasn't as prevalent as it was. Apparently, right after the Civil War, lots of black people were selling watermelons. It, they were easy to grow. Um, obviously, you could eat them. And anything that, that fostered black autonomy... Hmm these people and you know, these racist white people didn't want black people to have it. So then it turned into this 
racist thing that kind of swept the country. Okay, the so the funny they... thing is before the before before emancipation even back to Europe it was a symbol of basically poor people. Really? Be, because because you, you know you had to eat it with your hands mm. and there were rinds involved and I mean it's watermelon and it's a very communal like nobody eats a watermelon by themselves. True. True. But but before this kind of real concerted effort to make it into a black stereotype, it was like a hillbilly stereotype. It was just a yeah. poor people stereotype. Yeah, because because that's what I that's why I was always like slightly confused about it growing up, because I would see especially, you know, reading the comic strips in Little Abner, he would be re- right. eating a watermelon and he'd be spitting out the seeds. Exactly. And then, right, you spit out the seeds, right? Like, it's not really a sophisticated food. Right. Right. So there you go. Maybe you can answer another, and I don't know if this is a trope. Okay. But, you know, because you're a scholarly type of dude. I mean, look at by... I am. Looking at your sweater. So That's right. I'm wearing my (laughs) scholarly sweater. (laughs) Can you tell me where where does the fascination with sunflower and pumpkin seeds come from? Because I don't understand it. You know what, man? You talking about with us? Yes, with black people. Like you talking about black people? I have no idea because I think they're disgusting. So do I. <laughs> like that sunflower seed and and uh, yeah, I've never understood sunflower seeds. I've never understood. You know, when I was growing up, you know how. You know, because you're growing up, you're just eating what everybody else, you know, you go to the store, you grab a whole bunch of stuff and or Halloween, whatever's in your bag. Hey, that's what you got. And when I would get sunflower seeds, you know what I would do? I would take a sunflower seed, I put it in my mouth, I would suck all the salt off and then I'd spit the whole thing out because I don't need splinters in my mouth to get to some little, little baby seed that has absolutely no flavor. I have never understood sunflower seeds ever. And it's the same thing with pumpkin seeds. I we I didn't have as many pumpkin seed people around. Now I kind of used to like when people would make pumpkin seeds around Halloween. Make pumpkin seeds? Not make them, but you know you would yeah. roast them. Oh, I I never like, had roasted pumpkin seeds. You never had you never saw people roast sunflower seeds like well out of a pumpkin. Now I kind of like those, but I think you can eat the shells of those. Uh, uh, well, well, if you, you roasted them, those. I could imagine. Yeah, right. right. But I don't. I but don't know. Yeah, I, I, I never like sunflower seeds. Sharon Nugget says, "Len, I have no words." <laughs> well, I, have no, I, I don't know if you're if that means you're with me or not, Sharon. But um, I, I just I don't understand. I just I, I wondered if we can answer that tonight. Yeah, because then people spit them and yeah. like it hits their hand and it's, it's it's just real spitty. When I used to work in offices, you know, way back in the, you know, in the beyond the before times when we worked in offices, right. um, you would. What is an office? <laughs> cubicle. What's a cubicle? So right. when I would work in the office, I would walk by women's desk almost ninety percent of the time. It was women, and there'd be. A mug filled 
with seeds. They just on their brakes, just sitting there, spitting spit them out. I do not, I do not understand it. Uh, Sharon Nugget says that roasted pumpkin seeds are wonderful. They are. I, I don't know. About they this. are. I'll ha- I, you know, I'll try anything once. So I will try some roasted pumpkin seeds, Sharon. I will. I'll try that. Um, hey, Vince. That uh, was just on your mind? Like, like there, that was just on your mind? Well, we started talking about watermelons, got the seeds. Just seeds. It was seeds a natural and, transition. It, it was, it was, all right, fair. I'll allow it. Now, now this isn't, but I'm going there anyway. Did you see that American Masters has a new documentary is out there called How It Feels to Be Free as they look at the careers of six amazing black women over the course of the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, and even into the 70s. Um, How It Feels to Be Free documents the the life and career of Lena Horne, mm. Abby Lincoln, mm. Diane Carroll, mm. Nina Simone, mm. Cecily Tyson, mm. and Pam Greer. That's that's a bad collection right there. That is that is beast work <laughs> right there, my friend. Yeah, right I did hear about it. I did hear about it. Looking forward to that. Yeah, I got. I, I I I think it actually aired already, like on the fifteenth or something like that. Yeah. But, uh, I'm sure you know, just like PBS, they'll be um, rerunning that um, soon. So check your local listings for that American Masters documentary. Uh, but that promises to be some good watching, man. I mean, all of them could have their own documentary, right? Right. Yeah. If they haven't already had. Right. I I know Nina Simone has had a couple. Well, Nina Simone, the Netflix. Um, documentary on nina simone mm-hmm. is like like there are people who join netflix just for that documentary yeah 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 absolutely so that was that's pretty dope um george Kimona is chiming in on our shell game vince he says that <laughs> peanuts are the goat of shell snacks peanuts are excellent you know what my boy put me on a couple of years ago in north carolina what? Boiled peanuts, boiled peanut in the shell. Yeah, well, you you just pe- you peel the shell. So you take the shell off and then you put the peanuts in the water and boil them. No, 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 no. They boil the whole peanut in okay. the shell and then you peel it off and then you eat the peanut. Is it salted in any way? See, like I need my yeah. Peanuts. Oh yeah, yeah. I think I don't know if the water is salted or what, but it it just tastes like peanuts. But you peel the shell instead of cracking the shell, okay. and they're delicious. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know what? I I grew peanuts. I think I've I've I'm I've moved on to cashews. I like cashews. You too fancy for peanuts? I I'm a little too fancy for peanuts. Terrible. I like I like Just... peanuts. <laughs> I'm sorry. I like them in my cracker jacks, but that's about right. It. Yeah. That's as far as I go. I'm I'm a cashew man now. You're a cashew man because you're a sophisticate. And so is Fatima. Fatima, uh, I just saw it. I missed it because the the people are talking left and right. Fatima Ali says, I am in agreement with both you guys. Never like sunflower seeds. We have found our people. Yes. Fatima is one. And Bree Bree 517 says, cashews are my favorite. See? Also a sophisticate. 
This is why I like Brie Brie 517. <laughs> oh, I love cashews, but peanuts are, 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 are delightful. You know when you're delightful. It is. You know, simple pleasures. It is. It is. You know what's a simple pleasure? What? Soft pretzels. Oh, God. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You and your pretzels. You I can't. <laughs> I can't, I can't eat pretzels anymore. Um, all right. Let's get into our review, Vince. Okay, I'm going to bite. Why can't you eat pretzels anymore? Uh, I'll, I'll save that for trailer talk. Oh, okay. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> um, but first, let's get into our review of The Watermelon Woman. We'll be back with the film review soon as we do something funky and have steps in it. Uh, Hi, I'm Cheryl and I'm a filmmaker. Um, no, I'm not really a filmmaker, but I have a videotaping business with my friend Tamara and I work at a video store, so I'm working on being a filmmaker. The problem is I don't know what I want to make a film on. I know it has to be about black women because our stories have never been told, so I've been renting movies, no, I haven't been renting movies, but I get movies from the video store that I work at, and I've taken all these films out from the 30s and 40s with black actresses in them, like, um, Hattie McDaniel and Louise Beavers. And um, in these films, in some of the films, the black actresses aren't even listed in the credits. And I was just totally shocked by that. So in this one film that came into the store, Plantation Memories, I saw the most beautiful black mammy named Elsie. Her name, the Watermelon Woman. That's right, Watermelon Woman. Is Watermelon Woman her first name, her last name, or is it her whole name? I don't know, but girlfriend has it going on, and I think I've figured out what my project's going to be on. I'm going to make a movie about her. I'm going to find out what her real name is, who she was and is, everything I can find out about her. Because something in her face, something in the way she looks and moves is, is serious, is interesting. And I'm going to just tell you all about it. Watermelon Woman is a 1996 American romantic comedy drama film written, directed, and edited by Cheryl Dunye. It stars Cheryl as a young black lesbian working on a day job in a video store while trying to make a film about a black actress from the 30s known for playing stereotypical mammy roles relegated to black actresses during the period. This was the first feature film directed by a black lesbian, we are made to believe, and is considered a landmark in new queer cinema. This film also filmed in 1996 and filmed pretty much 80%, 90% of it filmed in the beautiful city of Philadelphia. Yeah, how about that? How about that? We are all over the map in The Watermelon Woman, Vince's selection for our review tonight on the Michelle Mission. Vince, what say you of The Watermelon Woman? I think that Cheryl Dunye is a name that rings out, as they say, 
mm-hmm. when we talk about directors from the 90s and and directors who have left an imprint Cheryl Dunye is very much one of those directors that your favorite directors speak of mm. Whether we're talking about an Ava DuVernay, whether we're talking about a Misha Brown, whether we're talking about a um a Barry, why did I how did I just forget his last name? Oh, Barry oh, Barry Jenkins. A Barry Jenkins, right? Like she she's very much from that '90s school, so much so she directed one of the best episodes of Lovecraft Country last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. A, you know, strange case. And Watermelon Woman was her first film. And is it is a film that we have talked about through throughout our time together. It is a film that has come up. And it is a film that people speak of in the same breath as a lot of those films that came out throughout the 90s that in, in a lot of ways were the, I won't say the children of She's Gotta Have It. Mm-hmm. But certainly she's got to have it was the soil and and kind of the catalyst that you had this explosion yep. of yep. black independent films. And arguably you can you can see she's got to have it in this film a bit. Yeah, the DNA's you, are there. As, right. As you said, Cheryl Dunye plays a, a, a young black lesbian, young black lesbian named Cheryl, who works at a video store and she is a filmmaker and she is researching uh, an unnamed black actress from the 30s and 40s who was in one of these old black and white films. And as she says in, in the, the movie, The Watermelon Woman, and this is true, a lot of these performances were uncredited. Mm-hmm. So so Cheryl Dunyee, the filmmaker was in fact trying to research some of these actresses when she made this film about Cheryl, who was doing the same thing. And in some ways there's this meta there's this meta-ness to it, where mm-hmm. this is a film about creating spaces for black women and and giving voice to black women who have mm-hmm. been voiceless mm-hmm. but then the film itself gives voice to black lesbians in a way that has never occurred at this point and frankly in 2021 I don't know how much has been done since then to tell the truth as a film this is very much in the wheelhouse of some of the other films that you and I have watched that came out around this time by these independent filmmakers. As you said, this is from 1996. And, you know, just looking at things that you and I have looked at, Half Plenty came out in 1997, uh, just from Chris Sherratt. Um, Love Jones is 1997 mm-hmm. from Thomas. Um, with year, uh, I may mispronouncing his name. I can't read my own handwriting. Uh, Tamara Leslie Harris does just another girl from the IRT in 1992. Maddie Rich straight out of Brooklyn, 1991. So again, you have this 
10-year period where you have these filmmakers kind of making their own films, you know, kind of highlighting their own voices. And look, as a film at my most generous, the acting is stilted. Mm. At my most generous, I can say that the acting is stilted. It doesn't seem like anyone in this film is is really that comfortable acting. I will say this. I found Cheryl Dunye's stiltedness kind of charming by the end. Like, I kind of liked the fact that she was kind of awkward, almost. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll talk about that in, in a minute, more so why I like that. Uh, the, the script... The, the script is 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 very sort of clunky. There, there's a lot of of the dialogue that doesn't sound like how people doesn't sound like how people talk, if you right, will. Right. And and let's just we we've mentioned this before when we talk about these films. As I said, the gold the gold standard is she's got to have it. And the problem with this or the challenge that this has. That something like She's Gotta Have It didn't have, and arguably some of Spike Lee's other films, is that the watermelon woman doesn't have the caliber of actor to get some of this dialogue across. Right. That doesn't sound like how people it doesn't sound like like natural. Yeah. Right. You know, if you 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 know, you look at the script of She's Gotta Have It, so a lot of that doesn't sound like how people talk. Mm -hmm. But the acting kind of gets it across. So there's that. All of that aside, though, there is something to be said about the power of representation. Right. There really is. And there are some films, and we we actually said this about one or two films that I've referenced already, that the film is bigger than the quote-unquote quality mm -hmm. of the performances or of the script. And I really fell in love with this representation of Black lesbian life. I loved how nonchalant it was. Like, I love the fact that Cheryl and her friend Tamara were black lesbians and they live in this world and, 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 and no one is cursing at them. There's no big drama mm -hmm. about them coming out. Mm -hmm. No one is yelling at them. You don't get the sense. Like everyone is very comfortable in their own skin. Mm -hmm. You don't get the sense that she is is creating this for an audience that needs to learn about black lesbianism right there 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 are no hate crimes this frankly isn't even a film quote unquote about lesbianism just all the characters right. are black lesbians right and she is this scholar uh-oh did, did you lose me or did I lose you? She is this she is just this scholar looking up this 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 woman. I think as a subject, this is uh this is a theme that has aged very well. 
This is a team that's aged very well. In a lot of ways, this is what we were just talking about before the film started, where we talked about these themes of black representation and what does that mean in something like Soul. And in 2021, it's very appropriate that she directed an episode of Lovecraft Country, mm. a show that one of the main themes was this reclaiming of black voices and and telling of these stories if you will that have been told by other people i think it's i think it's tony morrison's um term rememory if you mm-hmm. will yeah. where yeah. where 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 these stories have been told by other people but now we're going to tell the stories and sometimes we're going to come in and pull out the exact same story and tell it a different way so much so that I absolutely love the way that the story lands where where we find out that this woman who's who was nameless, the watermelon woman, we find out who she is. We find out that she had this love affair with this white female director. Mm-hmm. But the last word that we hear is that her life wasn't defined by that. Right. Her life is defined by what is lovingly referred to in this film as the family, Mm -hmm. this black lesbian community. And one of the more effective, talking about the quality of this film, in my mind, one of the more effective sequences was the... the the old footage, if you will. I mean, it's not actually old footage, but it has the appearance of old footage of, of... of the of these older lesbians, mm-hmm. older black lesbians, just living their life, playing cards, having a party, you, you know, joking with each other, walking with with each other, so that I understand why this film has the resonance that it has right. with people. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things, like you know. Um, because you pointed out a lot of production things in the beginning, which, you know, to be fair and to be fair in our critique as we try to be about all the films that we watch, um, there is some, there is truth in what you're saying. The acting is not the best acting here. I, you know, you don't, uh, it certainly seems like, you know, um, uh, Miss Dunyi at the time, who was, I believe, a Temple student at the time mm-hmm. that she made this so the reason and you know she was you know here in philadelphia born in philadelphia uh one of the reasons why you know this this film is centered uh, and focused and and filmed in and around philadelphia probably leaned on some of her friends to do some of the acting even though there are some actors who i recognize um but certainly this is this is filmed work way before they became recognized faces like one of the faces mm-hmm. i recognized actually from the from the wire it was actually interesting um so i know he was just a local actor who would go on to have like a little bit of role on the on the wire um but oh, that not aside the acting is not that great the i think that sometimes there as a first time the director there are things you could scream out as far as like how the composition of some of the shots and she also edited this film so the way that it is all stitched together so there are nitpicks to pull from a professional production point of view 
yet still saying in that world, there are also things that are to be championed as a first time director. Just like you said, this film, you know, proposes that she's looking up, trying to find out the history of this unnamed actress from the twenties and the thirties. And in doing so, you see quote unquote archival footage of her in these old films from way back. You also see as she goes along her discovery of this woman's life, you uh, see, you know, old home movies of this woman that were purportedly filmed in the forties and the fifties, you know, and, and I think even sometimes in, in, into the sixties, uh, all of that footage for the most part has the hint of realism to it. Some of that older mm-hmm. footage looks like it's older footage. You know, some of the scratches that she puts on the film stock, the old home movies look like actual home movies from the way that they're shot to the film grade that is used. Um, the character Cheryl supplements her desire to make this film by being a wedding photographer, um, a wedding, wedding videographer. Um, so there are scenes of her, of her filming filming weddings and there are also scenes of her using that you know those cameras to film like the documentary footage for what she's putting together Mm -hmm. those scenes look like they're filmed from a totally different camera looks like they're filmed with the camera you might see at a video store you know a videographer using at a wedding the uh uh somebody who just has like a live cam- live video camera just walking around and doing an interview those scenes look, look like that they had the feel of actual documentary be real footage uh, as it were uh that is then stitched together with quote-unquote scenes of cheryl living her life which have a totally different sheen to it which looks like more of what you would think in a typical Hollywood film, you know, that supposedly is a, 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 a snapshot of what's going on in someone's life. And all of that is stitched together in, in a way that makes sense. You know, when mm-hmm. you're looking from the video camera's point of view and you know, when you're a fly on the wall into Cheryl's life, that is very well done. So from a production standpoint, you got to champion a first time director taking that challenge and and making that work. Um, But then, like you said, the. The magic of this movie is just the. It's just the fact that it is. It's just the fact Mm. that you are just a fly on the wall in this woman's life. You know, there's nothing made you know there's no speechifying made there's no big dramatic reveals you know what i mean you know she took the opportunity to make a movie about a black lesbian on this on a quest doing something and the only reason she makes you know that she's a black lesbian is because as a woman she's living her life and she lives her life as a lesbian she looks at women she hits on women she dates a woman she you know uh sleeps with a woman she has fun joking with her other her lesbian friend um and, and there's nothing made of th- that 
as a black lesbian, she gets involved for the most part in this movie in an interracial relationship. It's nothing out of out of bounds about that. There's no big whoop, no one crossing an eye or anything. It's just very matter matter of fact. And you know, while that might not seem groundbreaking here in 2021, in 1996, shame of it is, that is groundbreaking. And mm-hmm. and it's and it's it's not only groundbreaking for the depiction of it, it's groundbreaking for the matter of fact depiction of it. For mm-hmm. the, you know, there's no sen- sense, uh, there's nothing salacious about the love scene that is in this movie. It's a, it's a, a nice, sexy love scene, you know, but it's not salacious. It's not over the top. Um, <laughs> it's not, it's, it's, it's certainly no more over the top than you've seen in any other, you know, R rated, R rated movie. Uh, it's it, and it's what you would expect if she was dating a guy. You would expect to see that scene. So she's dating a woman. You expect to see the scene. It's fine. It's beautiful. And in that, that's where the beauty of this movie comes out. We should probably put a pin in the love scene and talk about the history of that. Okay, we can talk about that. We can talk about that. But yeah. what? Um, that's the that was the magic of this movie. And in and it is in those scenes. That, like you said, the awkwardness of uh, Cheryl Dunye's acting, because we're pretty much asked to follow her for the most part. Like mm-hmm. everybody else is like, you know, they're doing their thing. Um, but she she is our window into all three of these worlds for the most part. And you're right. It's, it's, it's interesting that you said that the stiltedness of her acting does kind of win you over by the end, you know, Um and it feels earned because she is the first time writer, director, actor, editor of a film playing someone who was a first time writer, director, actor of a movie um, who is also kind of in questioning the life of this woman that she's investigating beginning to question a little bit about her life. I think there mm-hmm. the the script maybe doesn't 100% gel the 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 cohesion uh, between the stories. I mean, cuz quiet is kept, I would have just just as soon as the love her love story just been excised from the movie and just sure. her, her exploration of this woman's life and just um would have been enough for me. Um, but it's there and I don't think it's, I don't think it's juxtaposed against her looking into the watermelon woman's life enough that you get any type of true correlation, but that's just a failure of the, that's a slight failure of the script. Um, and again, that's certainly to be expected from a first time filmmaker. Um, you know, did I love this movie? No, but I found myself this. Despite the the nitpicks from a production angle, I found myself liking the movie. I found myself um, stirred up in the 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 vision of the film, um, and I also really really enjoyed the ending of the film when you finally get to fi- to see her yeah. quote unquote 
documentary yeah. of the watermelon yeah. woman and all of these pieces that you've kind of like mm-hmm. been visiting throughout the film all come together cohesively to tell this woman's life. And while it is a fictional woman's life, you got to imagine that this was, you know, this story is probably not dissimilar to a lot of actresses from that time, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, and I like, I, I love that as a button to this film very much. So I come away from it, like really in, enjoying the moment. It was pretty cool. Yeah. A, a couple of things you said of, about her relationship with uh, the character, Diana, who was a white lesbian and how the, it's not made a big deal of. And then how you talked about the film. I think you're supposed to infer that there's a parallel yeah. between Cheryl's life and, and I'm going to stop calling her the watermelon woman, uh, Faye Richards life. Right. And I think, I, I think there is a bit of th- this sort of, this sort of juxtaposing, interracial relationships mm-hmm. with this th- this notion of of this family you, you know these black lesbians and at the end where where Faye Richards I think her partner because even that is a little unclear says that tells Cheryl don't don't put the white director so prominently in Faye Richards life yeah. And and there you know there are a bit there are moments in Diana where you find out Diana has almost exclusively dated black people and and she does that that sort of white liberal thing where she has money but she only volunteers with black children and I don't think it's developed that much. And frankly, I I don't I don't get the sense that Cheryl Dunye was as interested in that aspect of the film as other aspects that I agree with you. I don't think that needed to be in there. Mm -hmm. I don't think, I don't think that needed to be in there because as, as you said, the end, the end is actually beautiful. The way they intercut the documentary footage with the credits. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you see Faye Richards life unfold. And again, how can you not? And when I say you, like I like like I literally mean you, Lynn, and me, Vince, and and this is what we do. How can you not champion this black woman, this this black you, you know this this black woman, this black lesbian, who basically is saying, "I don't see myself, so I'm going to create an image of myself." Mm-hmm. That's it's 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 really at the heart of so much black art. Yeah. Like like I mentioned all of these films that come out during this moment, but so many of these films at the heart of it. You know, Gina Prince Bythewood talks about loving basketball and, and talks about showing this this black female athlete mm-hmm. because she was an athlete and how that kind of spoke to her. Um, have plenty where Chris Sherratt is telling this story basically of himself, mm-hmm. if you will. 
no one talks about Brooklyn like Spike Lee because Brooklyn represents him so much. And, and this is very much a film that fits into that tradition and into that world where, where Cheryl Dunye says she had like her early work. She calls them, I think, Dunyumentaries, <laughs> where she, you know, she talks about how that reflects, they, they are a reflection of her life and of, of her existence. And, and yeah, it, like you want to pull for it. You want to pull for it. And, and it is this great snapshot of 90s urban life that you don't get that often. I, I think we're now far enough away from the 90s, even for those of us who were adults during the 90s, like we were young people during the 90s. And oftentimes when you look at these depictions of the 90s, they're either very, very white or if there are depictions of blackness, it's like this super hipster blackness mm. or super criminal blackness. Mm. Like it's not just like there's this there's this really regularness to this world that I love. Like I loved that they worked in this video store, but it wasn't like a super hip video store. Like everybody wasn't clever. I love the fact that their boss was just like a jerk like he wasn't homophobic no 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 he wasn't evil and what and he was, was he re- was he really a jerk because quiet is kept right he's they, just a boss that he's just a boss well dude they would stand they would be standing like quiet is kept they were annoying me because when <laughs> i go into the store and the people are at the register the people behind the register i walk into the register I expect that within a couple of seconds, whatever conversation you have is going to cease and put on hold so you can help me. But that sure. was not what's happening. So was he really a jerk because he expected them to do their job? Right. No, right. It, true. Like, he's just a boss. Like, he's just a boss. But but just historically, uh, you know, we should probably mention that this was the film that caused the change. In the way the um, National Endowment of the Arts gave out grants. Yeah, and this was, wasn't this about the sex scene? It was about the sex scene. According to the, the, the material, the, during a, a review of this film said that the sex scene was the hottest quote unquote dyke sex scene they'd ever seen. And, and the congressman, uh, Representative Pete uh, Hawkstra, who is the chairman of the House Education and Workforce Committee, read this review and it became this huge hullabaloo about the NEA financing pornography, basically. Wow. And, and it was obviously it wasn't true, but it used to be that the NEA would would like give grants to to basically nonprofits and then the nonprofits would would give out the dole money. Out the money. Right, right. Would dole out the money. Now the way it works is that the NEA directly finances projects. Mm-hmm. But it goes back to this. Wow. It goes yeah. it goes back to this. So that's just a little bit of history that we should probably acknowledge. But we we should acknowledge it. Yeah. But but I am. I ended up being a real fan of this film. I I completely understand again why people speak of this film. 
yeah in the same voice in the same breath as they do other films that we talk about and i think it's worth mentioning much like we talked about with um just another girl on the irt specifically it is disgraceful that in in you know going on 30 years there hasn't been more representation damn like like there there haven't been more films about just day-to-day life of of not just black lesbians but you know just just black gay life and just day-to-day life like like i'm you know we all know like i love pose like i love pose but pose Mm -hmm. is hyper dramatic yeah like they're either at the balls or or people are fighting for their lives i mean Mm -hmm. i know it's set in the 80s so that's just sort of how you have to depict it but like i love the moments in these films like you have these little almost transitional moments where Cheryl dunyi basically sets up the camera and either she or she and tamra just kind of goof around in front of the camera yeah it has yeah. nothing to do with the narrative it has nothing it's but it's just this wonderful shot of humanity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that we just don't get and as much as we argue about depictions of humanity for just generalized blackness mm-hmm. the more specific you get the less representation you have so it's it's you know it's sort of i guess heterosexual heteronormative cisgendered whatever you know everything you want to say blackness and and we fight for that and and we've been fighting about you know soul for the past two weeks and it's like a straight black man right But now you well you know how do we depict women okay Mm -hmm. well now we got to talk about that well how do we depict black lesbians Mm -hmm. and 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 there's so there's so little just representation well, I'm I'm sure that, you know, along this mission, we'll find that there has been more representation that we just weren't aware of. And, and for whatever reason, that just didn't break through. I know, you you know, one of my favorite films of the last <laughs> 10 years, um, Pariah, uh, has been bubbling at the seams to get reviewed on the on the Michelle mission. And it is only because the our our lineup for January and February is already set that we have to wait till March before it finally bursts on the scene. Cause I've been, I, I absolutely love that movie um, Pariah. Um, and I remember, and I'll probably tell the story again, but I remember I was actually introduced to it by some lesbian friends of mine who just, the movie was coming out and they said we're going to watch this movie and it sounds like a good movie i was like hey i want to go and they said you sure Len?" i said yeah i want to go and i went and i i love the movie i've seen the movie about four times since then i love it's your jam you introduced me to it it's my jam so um, that is your jam so So would you recommend people to watch the watermelon woman vince i absolutely would I absolutely would. Uh, not only would I recommend The Watermelon Woman, but I am going to try and make it my business to watch. Because I'm, I'm ashamed to say this is the only Cheryl Dunyi film I've, I've seen. Well, so a lot I'm, of I'm films I think are mostly short films. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I watch short films. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah. But you, her work is on display. She is definitely a working director. Um, you, oh, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned that she did one of the most heralded uh, episodes of Lovecraft Country, which was Strange Case. That was her her um, direct directing on that. She's also done some direction on All Rise, um, a film that actually stars one of the stars of the film we'll be talking about next week, as you'll soon hear. Um, she actually did some direction on on The Shy, um, uh, Queen Sugar. She's done four mm-hmm. episodes of Queen Sugar. So she's a working director uh, doing good things. I would be very interested to see her next feature film when somebody gives her the, the opportunity to lens you know get a full story behind her i would definitely want to check that out all right would you recommend the watermelon woman i would recommend the watermelon woman i'm going to i'm going to be honest with people like i said there are some people who are going to look at this movie and they're going to they're going to knock some of the the production values of the film it's like what were these guys thinking of and i ask you people to you know Take that part of your movie watching brain to put it on the side and just enjoy what's happening in front of you. Just in, and try and put yourself in the mindset of 1996 watching this film. And I think you might look at it from a totally different perspective and appreciate what is actually um, being allowed to be you're, you're bearing witness to you're allowed to mm. witness on the screen. Um, so yeah, I would definitely recommend people watch the watermelon woman. All right. All right. Before we tell you what we're going to be watching next week, ladies and gentlemen, we invite you to like and follow the me show mission. Email us all of your thoughts and concerns at the show mission at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on all social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Subscribe to us on YouTube at me show mission join the facebook group the me show mission where we have a lot of fun talking to all of our missionaries uh, uh, a quick aside vince do you know what the fans of um cbs's all rise are called i do not they're called risers ah i knew that because a friend of mine who is actually a friend uh, uh who does not listen to our show but has listened to it every once in a while, but is a fan of All Rise. He said, um, so, but she does get like the newsletter. So she said, I'm not a missionary, but I'm a riser. I watch all. It's <laughs> like, okay, congratulations. Um, you can also. Well, well, well Lynn, you have, to rec- you, you have to recruit her. I'm trying. I'm trying. But hey, she supports Simone. So that's what, you know, that's cool. All I right. At her. All right. Uh, <laughs> You can check out the Michelle Mission. We're proud members of the Podglomerate, thepodglomerate.com, curated podcast for your earbuds. You can check out the Michelle Mission in an edited form every Saturday at 1 p.m. on WPPM, 106.5 FM, Philly Cam. Philly Cam. People powered media here in the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. And check out the Michelle Mission every Monday morning at 9 a.m. on WKDU FM, 91.7 FM. FM, the voice of Drexel University. Next week, Vince, it's my turn, Vince. Yes, sir. It is my turn to select a film directed by 
a female director, an independent film that was definitely a darling of the independent world when it came out. And this yes. film came out in 2014. Vince. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, no, excuse me. I think that, that that's the. I was about to say problem. that's not right. No, it came out in 2018. I, I was about to say. Apologize. Well, that's because you, you'll find out next week why, why, why I made that mistake. Uh, 2018 is an American drama written and directed by uh, Nyla Moomin. Um, mm-hmm. And it stars Zoe Renee, mm-hmm. Hisham Twafig, uh, Kelvin Harrison, mm-hmm. and Simone and Dorian Missick. Ah, as, the Missicks. Ah, the Missicks. As Vincent and I will be reviewing Jin, J-I-N-N, from 2018. Make sure you get the year correct for all of you watching with us at home. 2018's Jin, not to be confused with 2014's movie of the same name, but drastically different. And we'll talk about that next week here (laughs) on The Michelle Mission. Until then... He's Vincent, I'm Len, and in parting, we say... We'll see you when it's, when it's time to meet again. It's time to bid adieu. It's been a pleasure knowing you. I'll see you when it's time to meet again. <laughs>